You've got a good beginning. Hit and miss and trial and error. It just depends again on breaking the records over radio. Rock music blares! Door slam! People yell! Children scream! Sirens whine! Trucks rumble and roar! And rock music blares! 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 Is there any escape? Hello, 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 and welcome to the Escape from Noise Cabinet of Curiosities. We're broadcasting live on Radio Dreieckland out of Freiburg, Germany, as well as WCBN FM Ann Arbor in the great state of Michigan. Now, I know that people in both countries have probably been hearing much too much about this already, but I just have to announce, um, after a long and contentious election process, in which there were many claims of voting irregularities, um, media blackouts, and social media suppression, um, we finally have a result. Um, President John Magufuli has been sworn in as the president of Tanzania, so... We can all get back to normal and stop having to think about all of this election nonsense for the time being. I'm sure you're all as, as relieved as I am about that. This week on Escape from Noise, though, we're not talking about politics. Although, actually, we are talking a bit about politics this week. We're going to be talking primarily, though, about the musician Cornelius Cardew. Um, and the question this week... Um, usually we try to ask, um, does a certain person give us an escape from noise? Does Car- Cornelius Cardew give us an escape from noise? Um, the short answer this week is um, he does not. Um, but what we're going to be talking about really is how does a man who started out his career composing music like what you're listening to right now, this is um, his Octet 1961 for Jasper Johns, How does a man go from producing music like this to producing um, communist agitprop like like this, for example? One second. All right, here we go. Collaboration, we sorted out your lines and dissection. You always broke, sacrifice, 
Yeah, um, I think regardless of your political orientation, um, communist, socialist, liberal, conservative, um, neo-fascist, I think we can all agree that that music is pretty horrendous. Um, but yeah, we're going to be talking about Cornelius Carter. He's a really um, interesting figure, actually. He spanned um, a variety even wider than what I've just shown you um, throughout his career. Um, some of it good, some of it really, really bad. So um, I guess we'll start off by um, talking about his early career. So he's uh, he's British. Um, he's born in 1937. Um, his musical career really starts um, in 1953 when he enters the Royal Academy of Music. Um, pretty much the premier music um, conservatory um, in Britain, where he's a very promising student at first. Um, however, um, he's pretty rebellious. Um, the faculty there is, um, you know, quite conservative. Um, they tend to focus on the sort of neoclassical, neo-romantic, um, what what we would think of as standard like classical music. But um, Cardu. Um, as a young man, is much more interested in um, European um, avant-garde music. Um, so stuff like the uh, serialism and 12-tone music of Schoenberg and Boulez and Webern. Um, so he's, he's always trying um, kind of a, a thorn in the side of the Royal Academy of Music. Um, he's, I think he played, um, he had the British premiere of Boulez's um, Structures One, uh, which caused a big stir. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is what the piece sounds like. So I don't know if you can imagine, but um, this was pretty shocking for the the faculty of the Royal Academy of Music to hear. Um, in the mid-1950s. Um, so he gets out of there as, as soon as he can, um, goes to Germany. Um, he actually starts working with Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, um, a really famous uh, German avant-garde composer who works with him from 1957 to 1960. Um, one of his big projects while he's working with, with Stockhausen is um, this piece called Carré, I'm not sure if I'm saying that exactly correct. Um, but this is this is Kave that you're hearing. Oh wait, that's a uh, structure still playing actually. This is Kare. Um so when um Cardu went to Germany um to work with Stockhausen, he thought that he was going to be working with Stockhausen as sort of like a collaboration. Um, but what turned out happening, um, was Stockhausen sort of, um, told him, um, viewed him sort of just as an assistant, as a sort of like, um, low level laborer. Um, one of the big tasks that Stockhausen had for him, for Cardu was he told him to compose 
um, quote, 101 snappy items, which Stockhausen could then like edit and arrange into the body of work of this piece, um, Cave. So, um, yeah, you've got um, Cardu essentially composing a large amount of this piece, but without any credit, um, without any recognition, without any real input into how these like small little snappy items of music are going to be turned into an actual work of art. Um, so, yeah, when he was when he was in London, um, he sort of had this idea that um, European serialism was going to be his like his way out, his um, his avant-garde escape from the conservatism of the Royal Academy. But it turns out that um, the world of the avant-garde was just as conservative, just as um, reactionary and hierarchic um, as as the Royal Academy that he had just left. Um, and furthermore, he um, the sort of twelve-tone serialism that he had interested he had been interested in um, turned out to be um, pretty restrictive and an, op- an oppressive form to work in. So, I don't know if you're familiar with um, serialist music. Um, it's not that hard of a concept to understand, actually. Um, the essence is that there's a basic repeating pattern or set of basic repeating patterns. Now. Um, those can be um, patterns of pitch, but also patterns of like rhythm, of um, volume, or of other modes of expression. Um, the basic idea is there's rules for how you use and pattern the notes and sounds, and you must follow the rules. Um, and that gives you like a structure for creating a, wor- a work of art that um, you know, finds new territories of, of sound to explore, um, things along those lines. Um, but this is um, kind of a caricature of a sort of top-down, ideological, um, authoritarian method of making music. Like, if you if you want to be a student of Schoenberg's, you have to follow the rules that Schoenberg has has set, um, and you can't deviate from them because that the the rules are the essence of the composing style. Um, so there's very little freedom. I mean, there is there is freedom. There's um, a lot of variation between some of the different serialist composers. But um, for someone, uh, a headstrong young man like Cardu, it's um, it's pretty oppressive. Um, he ends up calling the style, uh, this is a quote, death through music. So ended up not being much of a fan, even though he started out um, liking it quite a bit um, in his like late teens. Um, so his his second rebellion um, is to turn to the experimental music um, of America. So what we're going to listen to now, um, this is Last Pieces by Morton Feldman. Um, Cardew was um, pretty close with Feldman. Um, there's a quote that we'll get into um, later in the show where Feldman calls Cardew the, um, the moral center of British experimental music. Um, so yeah, um, he meets... Um, Cardew's exposed to the American um, avant-garde in 1958. Um, well, that's he meets John Cage in 1958 um, at a conference in Darmstadt, I think probably he was aware of them earlier but after that is when he really starts to explore american experimental music um a friend of his um says that at the time um he and cardu had 
um, this is a quote, an attitude toward the past which, like that of the Americans, was pure and simple, we rejected it. Um, so yeah, you can see that um, a lot of what attracts Cardew about the American experimental music scene is its sort of lack of tradition and authoritarian hierarchy that he had seen both in the British and the European um, avant-garde. Uh, so yeah, he starts performing pieces by Morton Feldman as well as John Cage. Um, he also um, has a piece that's... Uh, there's a recording out there that I've listened to um, of John Cage's um, piano player, David Tudor, who basically performed and premiered um, all of Cage's piano pieces um, during this decade. Um, he played... Um, this, this guy, this pianist, David Tudor, played... Um, some of um, some of Cardi's compositions as well. Um, yeah. So when what really attracts him to the the American style is the uh, the leeway that's allowed to the performer. Um, and I think this is something that he would have noticed while playing um, pieces by Cage and Feldman. Um, so in these pieces, I mean, I don't know how much you know about. Um, Feldman or Cage, but um, they're kind of famous for having indeterminate scores. Um, so like scores that don't have all the notes written out, but have maybe um, suggestions or sentences or diagrams instead, which the performer has to um, interpret um, to a much greater degree than a typical performer would, would interpret a piece. Yeah, and actually, if you... What's, what's funny to think is that he's probably had more freedom to create a piece um, as a performer of a Cage piece than actually writing a piece with Stockhausen. Um, yeah, so we're listening to Feldman right now. Um, he's maybe a little bit less less famous than John Cage, um, but and maybe a little bit less um, radical and groundbreaking, but I actually... Um, I kind of like his music a bit more. Um, but yeah, so Feldman uh, maybe doesn't go as far down the um, indeterminate um, score road as, as Cage does. Um, but what he does in like on this piece, for example, um, he hasn't notated exactly what all the notes are, but it's, it's a sort of more vague thing where he'll say, oh yeah, play a three note chord in this range followed by like a four note chord and like one very high note um, so it's sort of mapped out vaguely but not particularly yeah so um yeah this this american um avant-garde is much more based around um collaboration than um, the european or british um Cardew especially talks about it. He talks, um, he has a quote where he talks about this um, feeling he gets of honesty between David Tudor and John Cage, um, that their their production of music was not really hierarchical at all. It was based on a sort of equal understanding of composer um, and performer, um, that each of them had to sort of um, move towards the other's um, approach and a way of creating music. Um, it's a sort of more equitable relationship, one that appreciates um, entirely like their um, education and, and intelligence. Um, yeah, so um, 
at this point, um, this like equality between performer and composer, it's not like the point of of the music. Like I think we talked about Pauline Oliveros um, a couple of weeks ago, and a lot of her music is sort of it's about the relationship between the performers. Like that is the point of it is how the people interact with each other. That's that's not quite what's going on here, but um, Cardu is more more thinks that um, it's just a necessary condition to create um, good, honest music. So I want to go back to that uh, Jasper Johns piece that we started off the program with. Because um, I think this is a really good example of the um, the influence that these American composers had on Cardi. So the uh, the score for this piece, I know it's it's hard on radio um, because it's a graphic score. I don't know if you know the painter Jasper Johns, but um, he's famous for these um, paintings which feature um, prominently like numbers. Um, I think there's a really famous one that's like got the number five painted in gold um, with like sort of a, a very like um, early 20th century futuristic like, um, oh, I don't know anything about visual arts, but um, yeah, so the, basically I'm saying that to say that um, Cardu sort of borrows that idea and he's drawn these figures which look a lot like numbers on like traditional musical staff paper um so then it's up to the the musicians to determine like how to interpret instead of notes these um like large abstract numbers um he's got um several other different kinds of um graphic scores as well some there's one which is like a grid filled with symbols that are used in musical notation but are taken out of context um so basically the idea with these with these graphical scores, what um, the Americans and also Cardu following them, what they're trying to get at is um, they're trying to make the performer um, like use their own discrimination and intelligence to determine like how the sounds are produced and arranged. Um, they're saying that um, their role as the composer is not to say exactly how each sound comes out, um, but rather... Um, to provide um, suggestions and a sort of like overall um, sculpting and editing of the piece that the the performer has to bring a lot to as well. So um, Cardu's career, um, he's, he sort of composes in this um, American style um, for a while. Um, the next big development happens in 1966 when he joins this um, free improvisation group called AMM. So this group was made up of three um, primarily jazz, like free jazz players, um, but Cardu joined it because he was a quite a good piano and cello player. Um, so yeah, he joins this free improvisation group, which um, I think uh, really helps him to extend his his compositional and um, performing uh, practice. Um, 
you know, because th these earlier pieces, the graphic pieces, require a bit of, um, you know, creation on the part of the performer, but it never goes so far as um, as total improvisation. You know, the 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 score is always there in some way, um, guiding the the shape that the music takes. But with AMM, um, he's doing completely free improvisation, um, and he's got actually. Um, a pretty good explanatory quote for um, what he viewed as the the value of this of this group. Um, he said, "Informal sound has a power over our emotional responses that formal music does not, in that it acts subliminally rather than on a cultural level." This is a possible definition of the area in which AMM is experimental. We are searching for sounds and for the responses that attach to them, rather than thinking them up, preparing them, and producing them. The search is conducted in the medium of sound, and the musician himself is at the heart of the experiment. So I think what I see here um, when he's talking about um, searching for sounds and the responses that attach to them, um, he's trying to get beyond culture, beyond our like um, produced responses to music, beyond like all of the extra associations that attach to sound. He's looking for something that's sort of inherent to the human spirit, um, something true to like the deepest part of human life um, beyond sort of the, um, the contingent things of culture. Um, yeah, so um, along this, these lines, um, he, this is when he, he makes his first real um, masterpiece. Um, the piece is called Treatise. It's a 193-page graphic manuscript, um, which, yeah, it it's very difficult to describe over radio, but a basic theme of what, what happens in it is um, many um, sort of symbols that sort of look like they could be um, musical, musical um, diagrams, but are very clearly not... Um, are sort of manipulated and metamorphized um, all over these pages. So there's places where it looks like a musical staff will like sprout vertically out of the page and then spiral around into like almost like a flower um, and end up in a traditional horizontal staff. Um, there's sections that are filled with circles and triangles, sections that like look like circuit diagrams. Um, and the idea here. Um, or what, what Cardi says he's going for is, um, this is a quote, he says, I wrote Treatise with the definite intention that it should stand entirely on its own, without any form of introduction or instruction to mislead prospective performers into the slavish practice of, quote, doing what they are told. Um, so yeah, um, this, this product, this piece, Treatise, is really um, an attempt to take the idea of the, the graphic score to its um, like final conclusion. Um, he's saying it's not supposed to be an instruction at all. Like Before a lot of his pieces, he would say, um, use the graphic score in this way um, to like prompt you to produce sounds, but it's still, the composer is still instructing the performer. Um, but now he's reduced the authority of the composer as much as possible because as a composer, he's he's produced this work, um, but there's no um, there's no instruction for the for the performer for how to use it. It's almost it's a 
I don't. It's it's a source that the performer has to think about and interpret entirely for themselves. Um, not directed in any way. Um, and yeah, so I I'm not gonna play any particular um, iteration of treatise, you know, because um, there's there's a lot of them out there. It's actually one of the, a very very popular um, piece for experimental avant-garde music. Um, because it provides so much material and in such a unique way for like free improvisers. Um, I'm not going to play it because um, they all sound very different to one another. Um, and I don't think it would really help you to understand what the piece is like. I think like, um, like I was saying, the essence of this piece is the graphic manuscript. Um, look it up if you have a chance. It's, it works really well, I think, as a a standalone piece of art. I think almost um, I prefer to look at it just as a as a silent score and as a sort of suggestion, um, you know, as as a way of playing visually with um, with the elements that are usually used to construct music. Yeah. So um, I think with with experimental music like this. Um, there's often the urge to like look at pieces according to like what their intent is. I think that's um, the case, for example, with a lot of John Cage pieces. I think that's uh, part of the reason that he's become the sort of figurehead of the American avant-garde. Um, I mean, among other reasons, but a lot of his pieces are quite... Um, they, ha they convey a certain idea which is quite easy to understand on a surface level. It's sort of like... Um, if you go to an art museum, they always have like the little white cards that say what, what each painting is about. And then you can look for those things that they tell you to look for. Um, and yeah, the, the interpretation is sort of already done for you and encoded within the piece um, in, a, in a very like mechanistic way. Like this piece solves the problem of X or breaks down the barrier of Y. Um, yeah, um, I think this also comes from the fact that experimental music is a very academic, like literally um, in the academy um, form of music, um, which I think is is not a good thing um, at all. And I think it, yeah, it leads to this sort of abstracted um, sort of um, process. But anyways, um, what what Cardi is getting at with with treatise is a piece that is beyond interpretation, um, a piece which has no um, idea encoded in it whatsoever, um, that sort of is trying to break down all of the accumulated, um, you know, cultural baggage and instruction and, and everything that is usually put into um, a piece of music. He's trying to get right to like the essence of the humanity of the performers. That's um, that's at least what I see as happening um, in in this graphic score. Um, so it's around this time, around the late '60s, that um, Cardu starts to sort of um, move away from the American scene and move away from Cage in, in particular. Um, and I want to take this chance to talk about um, 
what that difference um, is that Cardi starts to see between his own vision and Cage's vision. So, like I was saying, he um, was really influenced by the sort of the idea of the graphic score or the indeterminate piece, which is something that he gets directly from Cage. The idea that a piece doesn't have to be notated entirely, but um, can instead be left open to interpretation. Um, so, by the way, we're listening right now to a piece called For Stella. This is um, by Cardew. Um, I don't know the year, actually. Oh, it's it's um, 1961. Um, so, uh, maybe a bit, um, bit more during his um, his phase of influence of by Cage, but I think it still it it shows what the difference between their two approaches is. So, um, say all that to say this. Um, Cage, um, when he's using these indeterminate pieces, he's using it as a way to get to a sort of perfect objectivity, like a work of art that's outside the human, outside the subjective entirely, um, a sort of like, you know, platonic ideal that's entirely on the realm of the aesthetic. Um, A lot of the point of him developing these new notation systems was so he could sort of get beyond the the musical tradition and the background that the performer has um, to get past all of that, to sort of chip it away and get right to the pure sound. Um, you know, there's a famous Cage quote where he says, I think we should, like, I don't remember it exactly, but the gist is we should just let sounds be sounds and not let them, not have to make them mean something or express something. Um, just appreciate them as sounds. So yeah, the um, the sort of instruction-based scores, um, and especially the the ensembles and groups that Cage likes to work with, those are um, also they're a technique to remove the influence of like the performer's personality or individuality on on the piece. So um, when when the instructions are um, are given um, in a textual way, one thing that does is. Um, it makes it about um, the action that's being done itself or the sound produced um, and there's um, less room for um, individual interpretation or rather the the power of the individual to change in any way how the piece ends up sounding um, is is minimized um, I talked about David Tudor before. He's the the pianist that um, performed a lot of Cage's pieces. Um, And he has this quote that I think exhibits what Cage's um, indeterminacy is all about in a really concise way. He says, I had to learn to cancel my consciousness of any previous moment in order to produce the next one, bringing about the freedom to do anything. Um, So what happens there is, um, you know, he's we're getting to a sort of um, place of total randomness and total freedom. But in doing so, he said, as he says himself, um, you have to sort of sacrifice any idea of um, personal consciousness um, or personal history. You have to give up sort of the subjective part of you, um, your, your like own idea, or, sorry, your own identity entirely in order to get into this mode of performing John Cage. Um, So the result then, yeah, is a a purely aesthetic object, which is sort of outside of human history, outside of culture, outside of human experience entirely. 
Um, and that's that's what Cage is aiming for. Um, Cardu is going for something actually very different, um, even though it might seem similar at first. So um, what Cardu is trying to do um, with indeterminate scores is give as much freedom to performers as possible. Um, he's trying to reduce the authority that the composer has over the production of music. Um, he's trying to give more space to people, give them more room to express their own individual ideas, um, feelings, um, taste in music, um, like to the greatest extent possible. Um, the, comp the compositions um, tend less to be um, instructions. I think it's, um, even if they're not formulated as questions per se, I think um, they function sort of in that way as like prompting the performer rather than instructing them. Um, sort of, they feel like um, questions you would ask to get some, like as a way of getting to know somebody that you've just met, but in a, in a musical way. Um, like for example, um, the this piece for Stella for guitar um, consists of a number of small little musical fragments of only like a couple measures each and the, um, the textual instruction which goes play with these pieces over and over change anything add and take away so yeah the piece is less about um, these little fragments of sound that Cardu's composed or their arrangement. It's more about um, giving the performer some little, you know, building blocks or tools with which they can build something that um, belongs to themselves. And so I think this is why uh, Morton Feldman said that thing about Cardu. Um, he said, if the new ideas are felt today as a movement in England, it's because he acts as a moral force a moral center. Um, so now we move on to the next phase of Cardi's career. So, um, yeah, so this, these explorations um, with the um, free improvisation of AMM with the graphical scores um, and sort of instruction-based scores and generally um, indeterminate pieces in general. Um, the reason that he's doing that um, is because um, of the frustration that he had with the sort of um, conservatism and hierarchy and authority um, in the avant-garde tradition in Europe. Um, he's looking for a way of making music that allows the individual to express themselves um, and use their judgment and sort of be treated as a, as a whole person rather than as a, an instrument for creating sound. Um, so he sort of follows that idea further and further um, and that leads him to explore um, a totally new kind of ensemble and performance entirely. Um, so what we're going to be talking about now is the Scratch Orchestra. That was his um, collective um, improvisation and performance group. It's really hard to describe, uh, actually, but um, he was working with it from 1968 to 1972. Um, it started as um, 
uh, an experimental music class at Morley College in South London, um, which um, they started uh, allowing more and more people from that weren't actually enrolled at the college um, into the into the group, which turned into a thing called the Scratch Orchestra. Um, they worked initially um, in they played like some pieces by Cage and other avant-garde composers, and uh, but they also um, improvised um, freely amongst themselves. Um, they get their name from a process called scratch music, um, which Cardu came up with, in which um, each member would come up with a few little um, patterns or scraps of music, um, little fragments of things um, that you would compose on your own and then um, bring to the ensemble um, and everyone would play them together. But the, the, the essential idea of these um, scratch musics um, is that they're not solos. They're sort of everyone's playing their own little accompaniment so that um, someone else can solo over the top of it and like anyone can solo. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a way of creating a texture um, you know that allows anyone to take the front stage and express themselves. Um, but then also allows everyone else to interact with each other um, yeah, on a musical level. Uh, but uh, importantly, um, everyone has total freedom to do um, to do what they want and to bring what they want to the class. Um, I think this is the the first time in Cardi's career where he starts working with musicians that aren't necessarily trained. You know, with amateur musicians or even with like art students that had very little musical background whatsoever. So it's with the, um, the Scratch Orchestra that Cardi composes um, what I consider to be his masterpiece. Um, that's what we're listening to right now. It's called The Great Learning. We're listening to paragraph seven. Um, the piece itself is made up of, um, of seven paragraphs. Um, their source is um, a text by Confucius. Um, in um, Cardi actually found it originally through the um, Ezra Pound translation, which more on that in a bit. Um, so the question then would be, um, why Confucius? Like, why has he chosen this text out of all texts to make a, an experimental music piece out of? Um, to answer that, I think we can go directly to the text. Um, it's actually pretty short, you know, um, only seven paragraphs. Um, and I've picked a couple of them out um, to sample. So... Paragraph one says, the law of the great learning or of practicable philosophy lies in developing and making visible that luminous principle of reason, which we have received from the sky to renew mankind and to place its ultimate destination in perfection, the sovereign good. One should first know the target towards which to aim, that is one's ultimate destination and then make up one's mind. When one's mind is made up, one can then have the spirit calm and tranquil, 
and with the spirit calm and tranquil one can then enjoy that unalterable repose which nothing can trouble. And having succeeded in enjoying that unalterable repose which nothing can trouble, one may then meditate and form a judgment upon the essence of things. And having meditated and formed a judgment upon the essence of things, one may then attain that desired state of perfection. The creatures of nature have a cause and effects. Human actions have a principle and consequences. To know the causes and the effects, the principles and consequences, is to approach very near to the rational method whereby one attains perfection. One more paragraph, this is the fifth one. When one has penetrated and got to the bottom of the motives or principles of actions, the moral intelligence or one's enlightenment in the matter of morals arrives at its last state of perfection. And the moral intelligence having attained its last degree of perfection, one's intentions are rendered pure and sincere. One's intentions being simple and sincere, the soul is penetrated by probity and rightness. The soul suffused with probity and rectitude, the person is then corrected and ameliorated. The person manners in being corrected and bettered. One's family is then well-directed. The family being well-directed, the kingdom is then well-governed. The kingdom being well-governed, the world enjoys peace and good harmony. So what we have here is really, um, really, to my mind, it's a text about utopia. It's about constructing the ideal world um, and the uh, sort of like moral um, grounds upon which that can be constructed. Um, Importantly, it's not it's not a theoretical text. It's not um, really metaphysical. What it's, what it's about is um, how to achieve this perfection um, in the human world that we all live in, not theoretically or like in the afterlife or something like that. It's now it's it, it is a bit vague on how to achieve this. Um, for one for one thing, um, Ezra Pound, the translator. Um, was a notorious fascist um, and anti-Semite, um, as well as being maybe the most important and influential modernist poet. So I think you can maybe imagine what he's thinking about when he talks about the desired state of perfection um, that, and the renewal of mankind and the ultimate destination. Um, and yeah, and so I think Cardew didn't know um, about Pound's politics when he picked this piece. Um, and he actually later retranslated it according, like he created his own translation because of the sort of fascist overtones of the Pound translation. Um, but yeah, I think what it shows for Cardew is that he's now interested in um, his interest, like before we were talking about, he's trying to transform the relationship between um, the composer and performer, um, but now he's his ambitions are a bit more ambitious. His ambitions are more ambitious. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think you get the point. He's now trying to transform the entire social world. Um, he's looking for a kind of music which can um, lead society to harmony, lead the world to peace, um, lead this sort of um, you know the metaphorical kingdom. To, to good governance. Um, 
Yeah. So, and yeah, this piece is an attempt to sort of um, bring that about or model that through music and through the way that the music is produced. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say really what the pieces are about beyond this text, but I think the fact that he's working with amateurs, he's also, the, the Scratch Orchestra tried to bring the music directly to the public. I think they played a lot in um, town halls and village squares. Um, they also made a distinct effort to get outside of London to go on tours um, to the more sort of, uh, you know, less well-trodden parts of England and bring this music to um, to the people directly. Um, so yeah, in the, uh, the inclusion of everyone, even amateurs, in this sort of bringing the music to the public and as well bring in this um, the size of the group, which was around, but around like sort of varied between 30 and 100 people. I think it shows that um, Cardi's now not thinking just about the one-to-one relationship of composer and performer, but as the relation of composer, performers, and um, society at large, um, the audience at large and society at large. I um I think I mentioned this already actually, but um the Scratch Orchestra only lasts for about four years. Um it sort of um declines and starts to fall apart um in the early seventies. Um part of the reason for that is a growing political awareness among the group. You know, once they have this idea of sort of trying to bring about new social relationships to transform the world, um perhaps um, how to escape the noise of their contemporary society. Um, Once they start thinking about that, um, they sort of get led inevitably to um, political questions, um, you know, and and then sort of inevitably on the left, these political questions lead to factionalism, accusations, and a general questioning of the purpose of this group whatsoever. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it, it is a group um, made up of a lot of, like, art school students, so I think once they start thinking about um, the relationship of audience and performers, um, the communism that was very common among um, students of the time started to filter in. Um, so they, they they think of themselves as music for the people, you know, for the for the people at large, which for them as as communists means the working class. Um, but they have this contradiction that the only people that are really interested in their music are upper middle class sort of cultured people, um, who's sort of exactly who they're not trying to make music for. Um, there's other sort of incidents, like at one point they were in Newcastle in I think 1971. Um, the police were there because it was sort of a, a rough venue. I think there had been some like race riots earlier in the week. Um, but there was a piece that the Scratch Orchestra used to perform in which one of the sort of instructions was to, quote, act as obscenely as possible until the authorities intervene. Um, 
And so at one point, Cardu started writing curse words on toilet paper and like showing it to the audience. Um, and then the police intervened and sort of um, arrested him and stopped the concert. Um, it, was, it was kind of funny. Um, headlines came out of it. I think it was sort of made into a bit of a scandal. Um, um, yeah, the headline here, it says, Toilet paper adorned with obscenities was handed to children by a Royal Academy of Music professor. Now, I don't think he actually did um, hand these pieces of paper to children. But um, anyways, you know, it's a big scandal um, leads to a lot of like infighting among the group. Um, but yeah, one, one thing that's actually, I think, really interesting, I'd love to find um, footage or recording of it is... Um, right before they disband in 1972, they perform at the proms. That's one of the, like, pretty much the biggest um, concert event of the year in the UK. It's a big, like, you know, high society event. There's, like, a month of concerts at the Royal Albert Hall. Very, like, um, kind of quasi-nationalist, like, British culture event. Um, everyone wears, like, evening gowns and tuxedos all the time. The Queen shows up and stuff. Um, and... They were invited to one of the nights of concerts, the Scratch Orchestra. Um, however, they, they wanted to bring like um, banners with Maoist slogans on them, and they wanted program notes to be about like Mao's struggle in China. Um, but that was all censored. But they still did um, play at the proms. Oh yeah, this is um, this is paragraph two of the great learning we're going to move on now though um, to sort of the next um, period of Cardi's work um, really his, his final period of work which is um, his explicitly communist um, sort of ideological period so this piece is called Revolution is the Main Trend in the World Today. And I think it gives you an idea of what he starts to try making his music about. So yeah, um, the same year that the Scratch Orchestra disbands, um, 1972, he joins the Communist Party of England, Marxist-Leninist. Um, I think this is a direct influence of of the Scratch Orchestra. Um, a lot of them, like I said, were students who were interested in left-wing ideas um, and the sort of democratic, decentralized um, way that the Scratch Orchestra worked where everybody could bring in their own ideas led to a lot of um, political discussions. Um, Cardew wasn't initially very like um, interested or aware in left-wing ideas, um, but throughout the couple years that the Scratch Orchestra existed, he sort of um, got farther and farther into it. Yeah, so like I was saying, he, he thought a lot about the relationship between composer and performer, the sort of inherent conservative hierarchy there, um, and also the relationship between performer and other performer, between soloist and accompanist, for example. Um, and he's the sort of center of that of that investigation was a, a struggle for honesty and equity and respect between human beings um, manifested in the music. Um, yeah, so, I mean, we're going to talk um, quite a bit about 
communism now in this section. Uh, maybe you're not a communist. Um, uh, maybe you believe that communism is the greatest evil that the world's ever seen, that it's like a threat to your freedom and your family values. Um, I'm not going to try and um, convert you to communism or really even defend communism at all in this section. Um, although um, I think um, regardless of what you think about Marx's political views, he was probably the greatest and mo most insightful economist who's ever lived. Um, if you want to understand how um, how capitalism works, um, whether you think it's a good or a bad thing, um, you should you should really check out Marx. But um, yeah, anyways, regardless of what you think about um, communism, um, I want I want to look at Cardew um, because of his commitment to a transformative change in human society and relations. That's sort of what the show Escape from Noise is all about. Um, and so yeah. Um, in because of the time and place and sort of communities that he was in, um, he saw party communism as a vehicle um, to bring about that change. But I think, um, I think it's not that controversial of a statement that um, the world is not in a great place right now, and it needs some kind of change. So I think I want to look at um, Cardew and this specifically um, communist period um, of his career as a sort of a sort of case study of um, of music used for like transformative purposes. So, um, at this period of his his life. Um, Cardew becomes like entirely devoted to communism and to sort of bringing about the revolution. Um, so then I guess for him as a composer, the question becomes, you know, what is music doing for the revolution? Um, like who is the music for? Um, what is its role in society? Um, both now sort of pre-revolution and also he thinks, um, post this revolution that will come to the to the united kingdom and to the um, capitalist world um his big influence um is mao um he both um in sort of communist theory as well as sort of the theory of art um you know mao was a poet himself um not a not a bad one either um and just one aside that i want to make also is that at this time um the knowledge of the famines and massacres um, of uh, Mao's government weren't well known in the West. This is only um, a couple years after the Great Leap Forward and the beginning of the Cultural Revolution. So um, I think we can sort of excuse Cardew um, for his, um, his devotion to Mao. Um, I mean, I'm not going to say anything more about that. But what Mao thinks about art and the revolution, um, he says that um, the lives of people are the source of all of the like beauty and emotion in art. Um, therefore, art is only ever a pale imitation of life. Um, life is the important, valuable thing. Art just serves to sort of, um, you know, embellish that and sort of add a little, um, um, you know, Art um, only serves life by helping to bring about change in the lived world. 
um, art is secondary to life. It gets all of its power um, from the actual lives of people. Um, what what Cardi says, um, sort of following this line of Marx, he says, um, of, of sorry, of Mao, he says, quote, as Marx said of philosophy, it is not enough to understand the world. The point is to change it. So we should say to artists, it is not enough to decorate the world. The point is to influence it. Um, yeah, so here you see that um, he sees now the value of music as being um, exclusively in its value to the, the revolution. Um, there's sort of no space now for, for aesthetics in art. It has to be functional. Um, the problem here is that um, there's no real like space for this kind of functional art um, in the capitalist society that he's in. Um, your options are basically one to enter the market and sort of have the lo logic of economic success and popularity and sort of commodification determine how your work is created and, and brought to people. Or the other work is to sort of withdraw into um, a sort of um, more academic, like purely aesthetic sphere. Um, but then that's necessarily um, detached from people's actual lives um, and experiences, which again is the source of, of all of the good things about art according to Mao and therefore Cardu. So um, it's during this period of his life um, where he publishes um, one of the things that he's most famous for actually besides his um, his two like masterpiece compositions, um, treatise that graphical score um, and then the great learning the piece for the scratch orchestra um, he writes his book in 1974 called stockhausen serves imperialism now this is a big um, huge controversy you know because he worked with stockhausen for several years he's a sort of seen still as a leading member of the avant-garde music music um, especially in britain but like in the entire world really um, and he publishes this book essentially repudiating all of it, repudiating um, his big influences, Stockhausen and Cage, but also saying um, of his own work that all of it was bad, all of it was corrupt, all of it was wrong. Um, I wish I had never written it at all. Um, so yeah, it, it makes a big splash. Um, but I think it's um, interesting actually to look at um, what he says in particular. Um, now. Uh, definitely keep in mind this is a very polemic piece of work um, so maybe everything he says in it isn't entirely defensible but I think he he's got some some interesting ideas um, so yeah essentially his his general argument is that um, the avant-garde um, himself included have only supported and furthered the cause of um, capitalist empire and exploitation. He says that um, the, the value of art should be the extent to which it um, reflects society and serves the community. Those are direct quotes. Um, and then he, he talks about the idea of how the solitary genius, um, someone like Stockhausen or Cage, um, is a very like bourgeois concept and as such, is um, um, you know in support of capitalism. Um, it reminds me actually of this um, 
idea that the historian um, Eric Hobsbawm has. Um, I'll go through that really quickly because I think it's a really valuable way of thinking about art, like all art, not just necessarily um, music. Um, so Hobsbawm Point is essentially um, the period between 1848 and 1873 is the first like real blooming of the bourgeoisie, um, like of capitalism as um, an economic force. Um, before like sort of the middle of the 19th century, um, capitalism was growing, but it was never, um, it wasn't yet like the dominant mode of production, except maybe in like England. But um, because this class of capitalists was establishing themselves um, they were much more focused on business, on the actual like making of money, um, not so much on um, the finer things in life, you know, the, um, the arts and aesthetics and stuff. Um, but after 1848, um, you you go into like the second and third generations of capitalists, and these are people that have been born into comfort and luxury of the success of their of their previous generations, um, and so these people are more um, interested in in the arts um, and so bourgeois art um, begins to emerge and this is art which caters itself to the market of um, bourgeois um, buyers so I, I should say also um, bourgeois just means the people that own the means of production you know the people that own the factories um, the mines um, that own the land if it's being um, if it's being farmed like by wage laborers um yeah so this bourgeois art has to please these people you know it's made so that they will buy it um and so the aim of this art whether consciously or not is to sort of flatter this group of people to support um their beliefs about themselves and about the world um to support their ideology of progressive liberalism which means like that capitalism, this capitalist system that they were developing, and the sort of wonders of industry and free trade will usher in a new age of like universal prosperity for everyone. The idea that the world is only getting better due to industry and technology. Um, yeah, and what's important, of course, is that um, the bourgeois class of um, people that own the means of production, that um, own the technology, are the ones who are driving and managing this prosperity. They are sort of essential to society. Um, yeah, th um, this sort of leads necessarily, or not necessarily, but naturally into the idea of the artist as an individual, as like a inspired genius who's above the rest of the masses. Um, it's sort of a parallel position um, of the bourgeois in the, um, in the economy is the genius in the world of the arts, you know, someone who stands above, who pushes the entire field forward through like the strength of their like willpower and inspiration alone. Um, also, it's sort of um, the idea of the genius art maker um, is something which flatters the bourgeois because um, they, because they have the leisure time to sort of um, indulge in the arts, they're able to like understand and approach the ideas of these um, quote, geniuses which then supports their idea that they're sort of more intelligent um more able more capable and that their position in just in society is justified um yeah before the sort of 
the uh, Industrial Revolution and the um, the French Revolution, the sort of beginning of liberal political revolutions, um, artists were for the most part um, craftsmen. They were um, artisans that were um, part of like a patronage system of the aristocratic um, social order. Um, they weren't as much celebrated as you know individual geniuses. So this this idea of the like um, inspired like sort of um, maybe tormented you know the, what we think of artists as today as almost like prophets and like secular prophets in a way um, that comes from this sort of period after 1850 or so um, it also exists another reason that Hobbeswam gives is that um, when artists are cut free from the sort of aristocratic patronage um, like um, almost craft system um, they have to find a way to support themselves. And when that's gone, um, they have to sort of cast themselves as um, in, in this new position as like um, as like a, the genius artist. Like that's just a way for them to create a new niche in, in the market. Um, and then actually there's a couple more things that Hasbaum says that I think are pretty interesting. Um, he says he, he's talking about um, the actual art that they these people produce, um, sort of the themes and and um, I don't know the things that these artists are interested in. Um, so he says that realism is sort of the dominant mode of the arts, especially of like narrative arts of this time. Um, realism is you know the attempt to depict the world um, as it is in reality and how it is in reality according to the people that are consuming this art um, the bourgeoisie is the sort of um, glory and progressivism of the liberal capitalist world um, but the, the problem with this realism is that um, to show the world actually as it is is to show like the growing um, growing poverty growing exploitation pollution hunger unemployment um, dispossession of the peasantry like there's a lot of um negative things that are happening because of the same economic system um so there's a contradiction inherent here in the idea of realism um and a lot of the arts that emerge are sort of um ways of dealing with this with this contradiction so there's several different ways um yeah, so, oh yeah, by the way, we are um, listening to some of the piano music that um, Cardu composed during his sort of, um, his communist period. Um, we just heard um, the Thaleman variations. And now we're listening to Father Murphy. Actually, we also heard as well, um, Soon and the east is red also i think the title's kind of funny um you see sort of his um dipping into communist kitsch the piece called soon has the subtitle there will be a high tide of revolution in our century so yeah um going back to realism there's sort of four different ways that people um try and resolve the contradiction between um the progressive realism and the actual like problems with the world so one is a sort of forward-looking realism that is expressed 
most easily in the emerging um, science fiction with writers like Jules Verne, who are sort of, instead of talking about the world as it is with the problems that still exist, they um, sort of fast forward to the world in which um, technology and industry have um, gotten rid of all those problems, which um, the liberal um, ideology says will happen in the not too distant future. Um, the second way is naturalism, which is sort of a variation of realism in which um, nothing is ignored or hidden. All the sort of like misery um, and contrasting comfort of the world is shown. Um, sort of, it's the actual realism. Um, a third way is a sort of like mystic, prophetic vision, a sort of transcending of the like mortal, like human world. Um, you see this especially in um, French poets like Baudelaire and Rimbo, Um And the last one is a sort of like um, fantasy, like humorist kind of mode of writing with people like um, Lewis Carroll is maybe the most well-known um, example of this kind of um, artistic production. Um, I, I say all that... Um, one, because I think it's really interesting um, and it's a good way of looking at um, and trying to get at the meaning of art, not just music, but um, literature and um, visual arts, as well as um, a bit more contemporary of films and plays. But um, the the general point that, um, he, that Hobsbawm is trying to make is that artistic dispositions are they're inextricable from the political and social context, um, not just on the level of the individual artwork, but on the sort of level of genre and form and how how art is received and how it's produced. Like all of that is determined by things outside of the purely aesthetic. Um, and that's sort of um, a realization that um, Cardi was having at this point in time. So I want to go back to um, that book that he published, Stockhausen Serves Imperialism. Let me find my notes. Oh, yeah. So um, I just want to talk specifically about what he says, the problem with um, John Cage and with Stockhausen, uh, what, what their problems are. Um, so one of the big um, issues that he takes with Cage, um, this is a quote, he quotes um, a friend of his, he says, um, the dilemma of this particular ruling class is presented as the dilemma of the human race as a whole, as the human condition in general. So um, what he's sort of saying is that Cage, in his sort of devotion to abstraction um, and to the sort of um, denial of meaning, is sort of, he's, he's getting into a sort of aestheticism which is only really interesting for people um, who already have all of the like material um, comforts that the world can offer. It's not something that really um, is interesting whatsoever to pe the, the working classes of the world. Um, another thing he talks about, um, this piece of cages called Music Circus, which is sort of um, conceived of as sort of an avant-garde musical circus where there's like a lot of different um, sort of avant-garde actions happening all at once um and he really um takes issue with this he says you know like what people actually want to go to is 
uh, the actual circus. You know, people want to see like horses running around and people like acrobats doing backflips and stuff like that. Like um, John Cage's art is sort of against the interests um, and desires of like regular people. Um, another thing he says um, is that he takes issue with the fact that for Cage, like everything's interchangeable. Um, sounds are just sounds. Um, Cage also had this famous period where he was using um, this book called the I Ching um, to sort of randomize um, his production of, of music. And so the idea with that sort of pure randomization is that no one thing really um, is important in and of itself, um, that any note or sound can be exchanged with any other one. Um, and Cardu's point, um, he, the reason that he thinks it's a bad thing is because um, it serves the interest of um, the capitalist class, I guess. And his, his argument, at least, is that um, when no note means anything beyond itself, um, that sort of supports the idea um, in bourgeois society that there's no greater meaning to life than the striving for individual personal success. Um, that everybody is just um, an individual person um, absent of any like um, personal interrelations. Um, and just in the same way that everything be can be changed into something else um, in bourgeois society, nothing's static, nothing's fixed. Um, capital works by constantly um, breaking down social relations and turning them into a source of of something that can be commodified, you know, and sold for profit. Um, yeah, and, and his final point is that um, when intellect replaces emotion, you know, when aesthetics overcome any sort of actual, like, pleasure in art, um, that's that sort of supports the it, it serves to hide the experience of actual working people um i i mean these are i don't know they're interesting arguments i guess i'm not sure if i'm like totally convinced um but what's what's interesting um is that he accuses himself as well like he was talking about the problems of interchangeability um and he applies that to his own work, especially he talks about treatise, that graphic score work. He says um, that piece has the idea that um, any music can be created, like any sound can be created, and any particular instantiation is just as good as any other one. Um, and there's no inherent like meaning. Um, and he says that sort of just obscures the nature of the, the class conflict. Um, so yeah, he's being very polemical. Um, here, I think he, he also accuses Stockhausen of um, impersonating a genius, you know, of sort of constructing this role of himself as this sort of, um, you know, like um, wild haired, like crazy eyed, um, like, I don't know, sort of imagine like a, a bust of Beethoven. Like that's what the figure that Stockhausen's trying to make himself into. And um, Cardi sort of accuses it of him of just like, being an actor essentially uh, which is I don't know, kind of funny um but yeah i think in general he has he has a point i think like i was saying it's inarguable that um the forms that music takes and the values that we give to it as listener that that's like molded by the system of production
um, you know, if you think about like in your own life, um, how music is produced, how the music you listen to is distributed, um, what makes it economically possible um, both to be created and to find you, um, how you listen to it, um, how you find new music, um, and how success is defined and rewarded in the music business. Um, I don't really have time to get into any into that in more depth, but I think if you think about music as um, sort of as a commodity and as something that's socially determined, um, you can get to um, I don't know the underlying assumptions about like how you draw meaning from music um, to begin with, you know, what the categories are that you use to create the meaning and how they're themselves socially and economically determined. Um, yeah, so then we get to um, how Cardew tries to incorporate these ideas into his new work going forward. So um, one of the big things that he tries to do and what we've been listening to um, for the last couple of minutes um, has been a sort of, he turns to more simplistic music, um, you know, stuff that, um, more amateur people can play. Um, a lot of it's like drawn from folk music. Um, and also a lot of it has sort of themes of like building up the people. Um, I think we can listen to, um, revolution is the main trend again. Um, as soon as this ends. Yeah, so this is um, revolution is the main trend in the world today again. Um, so what what's going on here is this is supposed to be sort of like an anthemic song. It's something that's easy to play, that's sort of inspiring people to, I don't know, solidarity, revolt, things like that. Um, yeah. He also, um, at this time, a sort of different strand of his work um, is this group called People's Liberation Music, um, which is um, a, quote, popular music group. Um, I think that has to go in quotes because um, when you listen to it, it's really the furthest thing from popular music that you can imagine. It's some of the most horrendously um, ugly and tone-deaf music that I've really ever heard in my life um, and it's something I don't I can't explain why Cardew made it and why he kept performing it for years and years um, but yeah okay so we'll let's I'll give you a couple examples um, so we'll we'll take down um, revolution is the main trend in the world today so this is um, the founding of the party by Cornelius Cardew and people's liberation music. With a class of proletarians we have unbounded strength and fire. But today we're enslaved and our very lives are up for hire. To end this degradation, the party to conscious revolutionary action does aspire. Round the teachings of Lenin, we must constantly unite. He taught that the working class needs a party of new type. A party 
listen to um the second verse and chorus of that i'll spare you but there's one more that i think is just um very horrendously bad um this one's got a bit more of a of a beat to it um this is the song for the british working class british ruling class puffed up with arrogance boasted that the sun shone on your vast empire that sun is now eclipsed British ruling class, we have got news for you. Your time has run out, you have got to go. Battles waged against a vicious enemy with grim determination. British working class aspires to revolution in the face of attempts to crush this aspiration of socialism in Britain. Light is shining in the sky. All right, that's uh, that's enough of that. Um, I think you get the idea. Um, like, not only um, is are the uh, compositions really um, like word heavy. Like, there's a lot of like reference to um, specific communist ideas. Um, it doesn't really roll off the tongue. The melodies aren't so good. The band isn't even tight at all. Like, they're not together. Um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's just surprisingly, horrendously bad. Um, I think part of the problem is that um, Cardi was never a popular music. He never worked in popular music, you know, like from the beginning of his career, from when he was like 17 at the Royal Academy of Music, he was always um, trying to get further and further into the avant-garde. Um, so he doesn't really know how to play um, popular music. Um, actually, yeah, there's... Um, I read this book about him where there's some interviews with um, friends of his from the time who said they would they would say I'm like Cornelius, you know, um, I know you're trying to like reach the masses with your music, but um, the masses listen to like rock and roll, not this sort of um, like campy like I don't even know what style to call that um, like anthemic songs. Like nobody listens to that. People listen to rock and roll, um, and Cardi like sort of thought that rock and roll was like. Um, the music it was like commodified music you know it was dominated by the market but I really what I really think is that he just couldn't write a good rock song um, yeah so I don't know if maybe there's a, a lesson there but um, yeah so it, in this period of his composition and his compositional career he sort of 
discards both the academic sphere that he had operated in, but also um, popular music. Um, so the problem there is that there's no like audience left for him, like both the sort of upper class educated audience that he used to have um, as a avant-garde composer is gone. But then he chooses not to write the kind of music that actual like normal British people listen to. Um, and so he sort of falls into the middle of, um, I think, really the only people that listened to his stuff at this time were other communists who would go to the rallies where this where this horrible, horrible band would play. Um, yeah, and, and part of the problem here is that he's too much of a, a bourgeois academic himself. Like, he's operated within this world his whole life, so he's sort of out of touch with what um, what the working classes are, really. Um, yeah, and that gets to the the problems of um, ideological music in general. You know, it's um, he he spent most of his career, you know, rebelling against um, music that imposes um, rules or hierarchy um, upon the performers and upon the audience. Um, but that's exactly what this um, this sort of leftist music does, I think. Um, you know, be, when his embrace of communist ideology is as strong or probably more stronger than, um, you know, Cage or Stockhausen's embrace of liberal ideology, um, his work becomes just as false um, and as separate from actual, you know, human lived experience as theirs is. Um, I think part of it is his idea of revolution is too theoretical. You know, he's always coming at it um through through the idea of you know i don't know through this mask of like language and of communist ideology like he doesn't actually know what it would feel like or look like for this transformation to happen um or at least he can't express it either um in language or in music really um and maybe part of that is that he's like i said he's really um interested in mao like mao's ideology and writings are really what um shapes his particular idea of communism and of course um maoism is communism with chinese characteristics it's based on a country where most of the most of the population are rural peasants um, who operate in a semi-feudal kind of economy um, and cardu is working in the united kingdom which is like a highly literate highly developed capitalist society which a, with a huge um, culture industry and I just I don't think that um, Mao's ideas really apply whatsoever um, you know it, it, it reduces music and art to just like a mechanism or a tool and that's um, exactly how it sounds you know it sounds like um, he's trying to like make an argument with his with his songs in a way that just I don't know they sound so so bad I know I keep saying that but I don't know what else to, to do, and I really don't want to do a, a close reading of one of those songs. So, um, I think we're getting um, near the end now. Um, to close out, I think I want to listen to... Um, paragraph one of the great learning um like i said despite um cardi's many failures and sort of self-described failures as well as um 
sort of unacknowledged failures. Um, I think that the great learning is um, a real masterpiece. Like one of the few pieces of avant-garde music that I really can get behind. Yeah, so um, sort of in, in summary, um, despite Cardew's incapabilities, I think there is something to his ideas, even though he maybe can't realize them. I think he's coming from an honest place and an, and an honestly inspired place. You know, that's why I'm doing this show at all is because it's, um, it's a search that I think I am interested in, what, in as well is, um, you know, the search for music that can somehow, if not bring about um, transformation in the world, but at least um, be a part of it, you know, um, help shape and at least match up with some kind of transformation. Um, and I think music definitely does have some kind of value to that. There, I think there's something about music that makes it more compelling than any other form of communication, you know, artistic or, um, or non-artistic communication. Um, there's something I think unique about the way that melody and harmony and rhythm just like ex instinctively makes sense um, outside of any sort of language or judgment. And I think that means that a message expressed through music um, seems to make sense and be true and sort of be um, harmonious in a way that no other art form can um, in a sort of natural, instinctive, like inarguable way. Like, um, I think that it's a lot easier to have different opinions on I don't know, a painting or a book or a movie than it is to have different opinions about the, the beauty of like a truly beautiful piece of music. Um, I think also this like goes back to, I mean, the beginnings of human culture, really like the, the beginnings of poetry are in songs, specifically in hymns and um, ritual texts. Um, these are things, you know, that are supposed to transform the world to heal people and bring about a change in the in the societies in which they're um, created and maintained um, and I think that this is something that Cornelius Cardew felt I mean I don't have a ton of evidence from this but just based on the um, the contours that his career took I think that he recognized that the power of music isn't in an abstract like aestheticized sound, um, you know, that we can't, like Cage says, just let sounds be sounds, but um, in how music allows people to relate to one another and to relate to the world um, and express their own feelings and desires about the world. Um, and I think that because um, communism he thought offered him the way to achieve this material change that he thought was so necessary i think he got away from um his artistic artistic sense or his artistic goals um but really with with a lot of his music um in particular the great learning i think he got closer than than most people do
So, um, Cornelius Cardew um, died on December 13th, 1981. There was, he was hit by a car in a, in a hit and run near his home in East London uh, on that night. Um, a lot of his friends and um, comrades from the time sort of have this conspiracy theory that he was assassinated for his, um, for his communist organizing. People say that it was like a very right-wing, um, even fascist neighborhood that he lived in and that people didn't like the, uh, um, the marches and protests that he was organizing in the area. But um, others say that, you know, it was, it was an icy night and a dark one. Um, you couldn't even walk on the sidewalks, so he was probably walking in the middle of the road on a dark street, um, and someone didn't see him and hit him. I mean, again, others say that the police seemed to be not interested in the case at all, and the hospital treated the case in a strange way, so maybe there's something to the conspiracy theories, but um, maybe not. You know, I, I, I think it's um, a bit delusional to think that he was really a political powerhouse at this time. I think the there was something like seven different communist parties, which already a small fraction of British society then split among like yeah, a huge number of um of you know disagreeing factions. So I don't think that anyone was really worried about his his politics. But um one thing that is interesting is that that autumn, just a, a month or two before he died, he had started studying a, uh, a Master of Theory and Analysis at King's College London. Um, so his friends suspect that he was sort of turning his attention away from this kitschy um, political, ideological music and back towards um, serious music and maybe towards some sort of um, synthesis of his political and artistic goals. I think um, the reason that I chose Cardi to do this show on is... Um, for one thing, I think he's such a unique figure, you know, someone who goes from working with Stockhausen, working with um, Cage and Feldman, um, to creating essentially one of the first like free improvisation groups um, in AMM and then the Scratch Orchestra, and then um, renouncing all of that in one of the funniest and strangest and also most insightful books about um, avant-garde music at least from the time period um, and then yeah that dramatic switch in his last stages of, of his life and not to mention the conspiracy theories around his death I think there's absolutely no musician who even uh, begins to be comparable to Cardew um, but more than that I think he's um, he's interesting because his whole life was spent um, striving after something sort of inexpressible, um, something that I don't think he had the words for, um, but maybe that he thought he could find in music. Um, 
if I had to put words to it, it's something that's, um, you know, totalizing um, and utopian, um, even magical or alchemical. Like, you know, you can see that he wants to burst through the, the like, the bars of the world that we're in to cross over um, into some entirely different world. Um, to go back to the great learning, um, you know, there, that text is always talking about um, perfection of the world and getting to the essence of things, um, of everything being well-directed, of, um, you know, the soul being penetrated by probity and rightness. Um, he's, he, I think he's, he's a man that desperately wanted salvation within the world um, of course, he failed to find it. Um, but I think that vision is the result of the successes that he did achieve. Um, I think it's important to note that what I think is his greatest work, The Great Learning, um, came before he became a committed communist. Um, it was the result of a direct um, dem democratic um, collaborative group um, that was non-ideological, at least in its beginnings. It's a, the Scratch Orchestra. Um, I think he, in, in the end, he failed. And I think, um, at least for his music, I think his, his involvement with the Communist Party was um, a mistake. But... Um, I think you can learn a lot by watching the decisions that he made and understanding why he so many times um, gave up and um, repudiated the work that he had done. I think what you can see in that is the, the desire that he had for a new world, one which I think I have as well and probably um, a lot of you do too. Um, you know, we can catch glimpses of this through the pieces. Um, which are they're enjoyable in themselves, but also as sort of um, examples of what he wanted the world to be. Um, yeah, he's he's definitely not like a stately, um, magnificent, artistic force. You know, he's not like a a Bach or a Mozart or a Beethoven. Um, someone who's like every work is. Um, becomes a part of like the history of of the form um, not someone that you really would make statues of because um, you know those people sort of in their greatness I think some of their human humanity gets removed from our conception of them I think but Cardio is is you know very flawed as a composer and I think that's what makes him an interesting subject um, I think you can almost view his life sort of like a, a buildings Roman like a, a novel of education where um, he keeps on learning new things about the world he keeps on having his expectations and reality um, clash um, and he never learns the critical lesson he never manages to um incorporate all that um and i think i don't know i think that um you can you can learn a lot from looking at that
in, in a lot of ways, I think he's become sort of a interesting footnote to the world of avant-garde music. That's how I found about him, is at least, um, is this crazy guy that made a couple good pieces, you know, um, worked with Stockhausen and then disappeared um, into into politics. But um, I think what's more true is that he was a man um, whose life and artistic work faced up honestly to the world as he found it. Um, and both of these things, both his, um, his life and his art were in a way crushed by his inability to, to deal with the world as it was um, by his overwhelming desire for it to be something else. And I mean, that's exactly what the show Escape from Noise is, is all about. That's all I really um, have prepared to say about Cardew. I think we can continue to listen to a couple of his pieces to close out the hour, but thank you for joining me. Don't leave us just yet, but um, get some sleep. Don't stay up too late. We'll be with you next time. Again, we're listening to paragraph one of the great learning.
I just think that's I think that's such a beautiful phrase it is rooted in watching with affection the way people grow it is rooted in coming to rest being at ease and perfect equity that was paragraph one of Cornelius Cardew's work The Great Learning we're listening now to paragraph seven I think we listened to the beginning of this piece before but it seemed like a perfect way to uh, to close things out here so You've been listening to Escape from Noise on WCBN FM Ann Arbor, Radio Dreieckland out of Baden-Württemberg, Germany, as well as on many streaming platforms near you, though I don't think all. However you're doing it, I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you have a good night.